James chapter number one. Looking forward to continuing our series on trials here in this first chapter of James. Pray that God will use our time in his word this evening to stir us and to change us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, I hope you're mindful of our worship services. Um, Obviously, each element there is intentional, right? We have our worship through confession. Um, We have our worship through scripture reading. We have, uh, obviously, our, our worship through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. Uh, There's all these elements that ultimately we come and we gather together to worship, worship the Lord. And uh, we're excited to do that this evening, and I hope you are as well. Every time we come to the Word of God, it's an opportunity for us to grow. Uh, I pray that we never come to the Word of God with uh, cold hearts, uh, that our ears would be willing to hear, our hearts would be ready to receive the Word. And so... As we sing and as we have those different elements of of confession and and prayer and scripture reading, it should stir our hearts to prepare it to receive the seed of the word of God so that it could take root and grow and bear fruit in the days ahead. And I don't know about you, but I still believe the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is the words of life for us this evening Let's open in a word of prayer if you would join me. Father God, I pray that as we gather that uh, we would not just come to church and to your word out of vain repetition. We would not approach it with careless minds, but you would cause us to be mindful of the responsibility that we have to steward your word, the inspired and inerrant word of God that offers life to us, and I pray that it would uh, breathe fresh wind in our sails this evening. For those that are in the thick, in the heat of trial, I pray this evening that they would find hope in the Word of God. I pray that as you used James to pen those inspired words, you desire to encourage us and to challenge us and to stir us up, and I pray that you would do that work this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this evening's message, once again, The Unlikely Opportunity of Trials. Um, The Unlikely Opportunity of Trials, and I hope you're tracking with me on that title because there is something about trials that we just are resistant to embrace. In our American version of Christianity, again, there's this idea that, hey, if we're a Christian and we really love God and desire to follow God, that things are just going to work out easy and good for us. We're going to be absent of difficulty and loss and struggle and sorrow. We just pull out this trump card, this exempt card, say, hey, I'm a Christian. Those things don't apply to me. But yet, Christian life couldn't be farther from that truth. The unlikely opportunity of trials is this. The trial should be understood as a normative and expected vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work of developing Christ-likeness within his followers. That was our big idea of last week's message, and it will be the big idea for our next two messages as well. It should be understood as a normative and expected way God uses to accomplish his work of changing us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. 
the unlikely opportunity of trials, a life that we live every single day often operates within this paradigm. Good and positive outcomes in life rarely come without substantial challenge and difficulty or discomfort. Certainly we can be surprised with the gift, something that we didn't do anything for and it brings joy in our life. And I'm talking about personal development, professional development, physical fitness, no matter what area it might be, academics, sports, positive outcomes and accomplishing goals and, and uh, us doing something great in those moments, they never come by way of us just waking up one day and just arriving at this incredible destination of achievement for those academics out there. I still have nightmares of my high school physics class. I don't know. I think, are you taking physics this year? Yeah. Are, are you good at physics? You are? That's good. Uh, I was not. Okay, I was not good at physics. Uh, for my strategy, and this is probably why, you'll see some flaws in my strategy, was, you know, I wasn't really taking my academic opportunities and pursuits with the greatest level of stewardship. Uh, for those that really achieve something great in academics, what do they do? They take a great care in the midst of that class. They take copious notes on that lecture. And what do they do outside of class? They review those notes. They go over those concepts. They do their homework. And they, they take those practice problems. And they continue to grow and grow and grow on that topic. They didn't just wake up one morning and arrive at being an expert in physics. I can remember particularly... Um, Schedule management has never been uh, one of my strong suits. I can remember one day I, I woke up and was heading to school and went to physics class and uh, the teacher announced that we had the midterm exam on that day and I thought it was the following week. And of course, uh, I didn't do well on that, right? Because why? I, I wasn't prepared. I didn't put in the hours and the time and the effort. I think of physical fitness. I was reminded of that this Morning, um, Justin Schaefer graciously allowed me to come over and work out with him this morning, and it was quite obvious that uh, I had not done that in quite some time. I was out of shape, but for a guy like Justin, who does this day in and day out, he put time and effort and hours upon hours and consistency, breaking his muscle down, hurting his body, literally injuring his body sometimes and pushing it that far for the sake of what? Performing at the highest levels that he possibly can. You can't accomplish something great many times without going through the pain and difficulty and struggle in the moment. Trials, they're hard. Academics and learning are hard. Physical fitness is hard. It's difficult. But yet growth and progress are achieved through what? The struggle. So James essentially is telling us here in chapter one, embrace the struggle. Embrace the difficulty because on the other side of that trial, on the other side of that difficulty and hardship, there's something to be gained. There's purpose in the difficulty. There's purpose in the, the tension. There's purpose in whatever you're dealing with. It is not vain struggle, right? And I think this is where James is challenging us, our thinking on trials. 
In a similar sense, trials in life are never easy. They go well beyond the struggle and difficulty of physical fitness and academics. It's real lives, jobs, relationships. They are rarely what we would choose in the midst of that trial, but yet in God's sovereignty, right? And remember through Genesis, we define sovereignty as God's rule and authority over all things and all peoples at all times. God in his sovereignty has chosen this unlikely means of trials to bring about the greatest extent of joy this side of eternity. Wow. In my finite mind, I'm thinking back to this infinite God who created all things and spoke all things into existence. Are are you sure about this plan? Surely there's another way and something else that you could choose to bring about this this work of developing Christ's likeness and maturing us in our walk and our relationship with you. But yet God says, no, trials are the vehicle by which God accomplishes and accelerates his progressive work changing us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Through this unlikely means of trials, God allows the greatest extent of joy this side of eternity to be realized. Friends, I don't know if you can think back on a trial, a time of loss and difficulty. God brought you through it. He was faithful. And on on that other end, you can say yes. God did a work. Yes, he did use that trial, that difficulty for his glory. And although incredibly difficult, incredibly hard, painful, sorrowful, it was for my good. This evening, we're going to look at three different purposes. This is what Andy was alluding to. There's purpose in the trial, there's purpose in the hardship. These are not to be just viewed as seasons for us to endure and just get through, but yet God wants to do something in the midst of this trial. So there's purposes, there's three purposes in these verses of two through 11 that James wants to bring out for his readers that will be applicable even for us this evening. The first purpose is this, God sovereignly uses trials to redefine the object of our joy in this life. Okay, so God sovereignly uses trials to redefine the object of our joy in this life. So James starts out in verse number two. We uh, just gave a quick intro to this uh, at the end of last week's sermon. But what was the imperative that he started with in verse number two? He said to what? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. If you'll remember, remember with me back to last week, we introduced this concept of trials, suffering, and hardships. And you'll remember that James is drawing their focus on how to first think about trials, how they should change their perspective on trials before he addresses what to do in the midst of trials. Does that make sense? So he, he's first approaching their mind and their understanding and their approach and perspective. And once he nails that down of how they are to think about trials, he's then going to move them to action, some things that they can do to help sustain them through the difficulty of trial. 
So we are to count. This has the idea of holding a view or opinion in regard to something, to think, to believe, to consider, or to regard something a certain way. So how are we to think about trials as James tells us in verse number two? Count it all what? Joy. We were to think about these trials in a joyful manner. This seems so counterintuitive to our human nature. Uh, This is something that we certainly can't stir up from us in and of our own strength. In our own strength, there's question, there's despair, there's uncertainty, there's sorrow, there's all these human emotions. But there's grace available in that time of need and there is a Holy Spirit that empowers us to respond to these difficult times of life the way that Christ would. Can you think back to that Garden of Gethsemane? Just absolutely overwhelmed with emotion. If there's any other way, God the Father, that you could accomplish your redemptive plan in this earth, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, do it. But what did Jesus say? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is a grace-enabled, Holy Spirit-empowered response that the Christ follower, his disciples, for the one that is seeking and desiring to pursue joy in nothing else other than God himself. You see, God uses trials to redefine the object of our joy in this life. Guess what, friends? There are numerous things and philosophies that are fighting for our joy and our attention. Are there not? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the cares of this world, the American dream, politics, Christian nationalism, all of these things are teed up as an outlet for us to deploy our joy and to root and seed our joy in. But yet God says the only way that you can experience Christ-saturated joy to its fullest extent is through Trials. So he's redefining our joy for these readers. Our joy should be on nothing else in this world, no other pursuits, no other desires. This is the essence of biblical discipleship. Jesus said, if you desire to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Difficult. This is work. There's a struggle that we must lean into here. God, give me joy in you. Nothing else. Give me joy in the rain. Give me joy in the sorrow. Give me joy in the seasons of loss, joy in hardship. Give me joy in nothing else but you. So this first imperative This is the what of our text. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And then James, what does he do? He gives us the why. There's a great opportunity of joy, but secondly, there's also a great opportunity for growth in the midst of trials. There's a great opportunity for growth in the midst of trials. 
Do you remember this first main purpose of James? He's pointing his readers to that God is desiring to redefine or recalibrate the object of our joy in this life. So what is the one thing for the Christian that should give us the greatest joy in this life? Should it not be our relationship with God? Friends, I just want you to think about that reality. Think back on today and yesterday and this past week, this past month. Are you experiencing, are you drawing your joy from your relationship with God? God sovereignly uses these trials to bring about joy. I think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. Do you remember them? I couldn't help but my mind wandered to these verses as I read through this passage in James chapter number 1. Paul says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, and Paul listed out those seven or eight things that he counted at one point as righteousness, but he said, I counted all those things as loss for the sake of whom? Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the, get this, the surpassing worth or value, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul understood that joy in Christ was worth everything. For his sake, Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, what, gain Christ. You see, when God takes us through a season of loss, he gives us always a gain. We gain a new perspective. There's a new facet in our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's something to be gained. There's value and there's purpose in the midst of the trial. Paul said, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in who? In who? Him, Jesus not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. This is the heart that James has right here in chapter one when he's teaching us about trials. Knowing Jesus is our greatest joy. Something happens to the Christian when they are beginning to count it all joy, when they meet trials of various kinds, when their thinking is aligned with God's purposes, when they are walking in the Spirit. Something happens to that believer, and this is the process that we see in verses three through four, there's a process that unfolds. There's something that happens to this disciple, this Christ follower. They begin to become like the one that they are finding joy in. Did you get that? When, when we count it all joy, when we meet trials of various kinds, when we count our joy, when we place our joy in Christ and, and knowing Him, there's something that happens. We become like Him in that process. And we see Christ's likeness begin to develop in our life. This is progressive sanctification unfolding. 
Growth begins to take place and this miracle unfolds where we become alive. And the same gospel that saved us now begins to do what? It begins to transform us, to change our thinking and our thoughts and our reactions, to become more like those of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This absolutely 100% is the work of the Spirit. I can't do this on my own, friends. This is the hope, though, that I have in the gospel that he that begun this good work, he is going to bring it about through to completion. I can't help but think, again, my mind wandering as I read through this passage in James. Are you thinking about Romans 12, 1 and 2? Paul there in that letter to the church at Rome says this in verse number 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God, I have no right. I have no ownership of my life and my family and my marriage. I simply offer it to you to use in whatever way that you see fit that would maximize your glory in this world. This is the heart of Paul in Romans chapter number 12. To present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our what? It is an act of spiritual worship. He goes on, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is our thinking and our approach and our perspective. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Does this sound like our text in verses three through four? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in what? Nothing. Lacking in absolutely nothing. This is the unlikely opportunity of trials through the vehicle of trials. We have an opportunity to be complete and lacking in nothing. This is the work, again, I alluded to it just in the previous comments, progressive sanctification. This is simply, uh, theologically, this uh, experiencing growth and maturation in their walk with the Lord, whereby they are steadily becoming less like the natural man, our our pre-Christ self, our pre-gospel self, and we're becoming more like the risen Savior of which we are to be following We are being sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? We're being set apart from the world, but also we're being set apart to Christ. This is what we have here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, verses James. This is what we saw in Romans chapter number 12, verses 1 and 2. But it's interesting that James starts with this phrase in verse number 3, for you know. I love that phrase. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, we aren't 100% clear if James is using this language because he knows that they've already been instructed on this topic. Maybe he's alluding back to some previous letters that may have been circulating 
Or maybe he just knows that this is a logical approach to the Christian life, that it should be known that, hey, you know what? When you denied yourself, took up your cross, we know that that imagery and that little literal figure of the cross meant what? Death and, and suffering and sacrifice. They saw it exemplified by Jesus Christ in those earliest days. They knew what being a Christ follower meant. There was risk. There was danger. There was struggle. There was trials and persecution. There was loss and sorrow. It was bound to knock at every single person's door. That was their understanding and assumption in that day. And friends, it should be ours even this many years later. For you know. I would contend that more than likely James is appealing to this logical nature and understanding that testing and trials produce something within us. Namely, as James points out, it produces what? Steadfastness. Other translations will use this word endurance here, but the word that always comes to mind and I'm, uh, as, as I was writing it down and typing into my, my notes, I know it's not a real word. Maybe it is. I should look it up at some point, but stick to That's not a word, is it? We got a couple of teachers. Any yeas or nays here? Maybe? No? Yeah, there we go. It's a, it's a word that I use, and so I'm, I'm going to say it's a word. It's probably not, but this is the essence or the heart of this word. It produces steadfastness, endurance, or stick to This is the, the heart or the disposition that we should have in relation to trials. This is the unlikely opportunity. Trials produce something in us. There is purpose for these trials. I want to be clear, this is more than the simple worldly ideology of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> this isn't what Paul's advocating for here. Rather, Paul, under, or excuse me, James, I need to quit quoting Paul's passages and getting my authors mixed up here. Rather, he is reminding them, James is, that they already know this to be true about God. That God is kindly disposed to them. This God is for them. And God, this God, that is kind and for them, will use trials to produce Christ-likeness in them. My friends, there's a reality check, and I want us to wrap our minds around this as we anchor on this idea of purpose in the midst of trial. That this Christ-likeness that is developed in this, this steadfastness that will be developed in our lives, that this work or this maturation, this growth would have never come about in the way that it will, but by the unlikely means of whatever trial God has allowed in your life. That was kind of a mouthful. What am I saying? That we're only going to grow in the way that God ordains through the trials that he allows and if we don't embrace those trials, if we don't seize the opportunity in the midst of those trials, we could squander away an opportunity for growth and joy in Christ. 
opportunity and purpose in these trials. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, James says. So what should we do? This is the second imperative of our text. Verse 4, embrace the process. Continue to submit to the sovereign plan of God in your life and let that steadfastness, that endurance, that stick-to-itiveness, let it have its full effect. Embrace it in, its, in every way that you possibly can. And what's the result that James calls out for us here? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Simply put, James says this, Christ-likeness can and will be our reality, but only through the unlikely means of trials. So I want to ask a point of application as we bring our thoughts to a close this evening, being conscious of time. Uh, we did not make it that far. That's okay. What about you, though? I want you to think back on your thinking. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces Christ-likeness. We know a lot of things in this world of information overload, do we not? We got that high-speed computer right in our pocket any second of the day. But knowing does not equal believing. Knowing does not produce application. I know that diet and exercise are good for me, but I'm not as diligent as I should in those areas. We know that saving a little bit every month and spending less than we make is good for us, but yet we make those compulsory purchases week after week. We know that regularly changing the air filter in our HVAC unit is good for our home. Man, when was the last time we did that? Last month. Good. Well done, brother. We know lots of things, but yet day in and day out, we choose things in our personal lives that we know aren't even good. They're actually going to harm us, right? So not only are we neglecting the good things that we know we should do, but we're actually making poor choices that we know will hurt us in our finances, in our health, in other areas of our life. And friends, if we're not careful, this type of mindset, it, it spills over into our spiritual life. We think because we, we come on a Saturday to our scheduled worship service, we maybe check a box, we show up at a life group, we um, do something here and there that, hey, we're, we're doing okay, right? We know that God, friends, has chosen the unlikely means of trials and hardship to make us more into the image of his son, but instead of trusting and hoping and believing and enduring as we're gonna see through the remaining verses, We throw in the towel. We question God. We embrace human emotions of fear, 
and uncertainty. We allow those to rule our minds and our hearts. Friends, my closing remark is this. God desires for us to experience his very own supernatural joy and growth, and he calls us to lean in to this opportunity to embrace the trials of life. Next week, we're going to cover two other additional purposes. God sovereignly uses trials to cultivate a wise perspective to life's hardships. And then our third and final point is God sovereignly uses trials to dispel the myth of placing hope in material wealth. So I hope you come back ready to continue to grow and learn about how God desires to use trials for our good and his glory. Let's close in the word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this evening, for your word. I pray that you would use it to do a work in our lives. And I pray even as we close our service, as we join one more time, time of song and worship, and then we break out into our application time, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that as we leave this place, that we would be changed. We be changed by the us. Not just because of your word, but we be doers of the Holy Spirit draw us to a place of application.